Hi Ventures, welcome to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I'm your host Freddie Cocker and this podcast is brought to you by Vent, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start conversations. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and a chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. This podcast and vent believes in the power of redemption, change and improvement and I would be a hypocrite if I did a podcast about being non-judgmental if I did not demonstrate that through my guests. My special guest for today's episode is someone who in a previous life was a very dangerous man but who has now reformed and transformed his life to help people in his new one. Sicarius McGrath is a former gang member and street level arms dealer from Merseyside. He became involved in gangs when he was 15 years old and went to prison when he was 21 for the attempted murder of a man in Birkenhead. If the bullet had gone into the man's chest instead of his shoulder, it's likely he would have died and Sicarius would have gone to prison for murder and likely for a big portion of his life. Whilst in prison, Sicarius watched an ITV drama series called Little Boy Blue, which was based on the real-life story of the murder of Reese Jones an 11-year-old boy who was caught in the crossfire of a gang-related shootout whilst going about his day. Sicarius marks this moment as the turning point for his life, and when the penny dropped for him to want to turn his life around and stop young boys and men from going down the path that he did. When he came out of prison, he started an organisation which runs youth rehabilitation programmes to tackle organised crime, young boys caught up in county line drug operations, and the victims of grooming by older men into these gangs. I'm grateful to Sakaris for being so open and honest in this conversation, not just about the crimes he committed and the people he hurt, but also how he is now helping the types of people he would have previously hurt and his desire to change society and help these lost, angry and isolated young boys. So this is how my conversation with Sakaris McGrath went. Sakarius McGrath, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast, mate. I know you've probably got a lot of busy things in your schedule at the moment. You do a lot of work with young people and the amazing work that you do helping young people get back into uh, employment or get back into kind of normal mainstream life. So first of all, mate, how are you? How's Christmas and New Year? All right, not bad. Yeah. Excellent. Um, I'm I'm just busy getting me all my training programs, like training qualifications that I need. So I've just been busy with that for the last two months, but once that's done, going back to the new program, getting getting that implemented. Mm-hmm. So I've got my last exam this week, my last test this week. So hopefully, if I pass them, then I'm returning to get my youth program implemented. I've got uh, some a proportion of the money raised already, so mm-hmm. uh, I just need to continue and get the rest of that so we can get it put into practice. After I saw your episode with the lads from Trigonometry, I knew I had to get you on the pod and talk about your incredible life story. So without further delay, are you ready to start the show? Yeah, that's fine, yeah. Let's start the pod and build this picture of your life by talking about your mental health journey first, mate. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Just walk me through your early life in Merseyside, teenagers, and looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Sicarius we meet here? I suppose growing up in the area I grew up in, and I was raised and who was surrounding myself with, there was definitely mental health issues from an early age. Even stuff with witnessing domestic violence and stuff like that, mm-hmm. it impacts you and it, 
it does play with your head, but you, you don't realise until later on in life. You don't realise you've got mental health issues until later on in life. But there was a time, 2001 and beyond, when when I was suffering severe mental health, and that went on till about, I don't know, say, 2008, 2009, maybe. But yeah, I think I think the way the lifestyle I was involved in, it definitely does have an impact on mental health. You said in your trigger interview that peer influence was a big impact on you and you got your first car when you were just 11 years old and you were driving back then which sounds pretty bonkers probably to most of my listeners so just tell me about that period of your life because it doesn't sound there was a lot of guardrails put in place for you back then to maybe say hang on don't do that wait till you're 17 and when you get your license there weren't no guidance whatsoever there weren't nothing i had a yacht worker called jim elmer and there was no help whatsoever the only thing they used to do is say come and play pool that was it that weren't addressing the underlying issues that weren't helping nothing. So I think the youth offending teams, the youth workers and the professionals, maybe they've got better now compared to when I was a kid, but I think they're a load of crap. And and there's not an effective that they do to, to help these kids, especially the ones who were, who were involved in gangs and going to knife crime. Obviously the kids and the parents need to take some degree of responsibility, but I think professionals make it a lot worse, make a bad situation worse. We're going to get to the work that you do and the factors behind that a little bit later in the pod, mate. But just first of all, talking about your your first, I guess, interaction with the criminal justice system, you were arrested for the first time when you were just 13 years old driving a motorbike. Yeah, I, th- I think it was about, when I got arrested on the motorbike, I think it was about 13, 12 even, 12, 13. But I was not charged. I was just took, took to the police station and, and then I was collected thereafter and he gave me my me, uh, me motorbike back, so... That never really had a negative impact on me being arrested at that point. I don't even know if I was put in a cell. I think they just took me to what main police station. Within half an hour, I was collected. So that never, I don't think that impacted me. Let's talk about how you ended up into gang life. So what were the factors behind it? And what did the gang or gang life provide for you in a warp sense that you couldn't get elsewhere? Was it escapism? Was it brotherhood, purpose, something to do, love? What were the factors here? I think with me, if I remember rightly, it was a safety element, protection, because mm-hmm. um, I, w- I was getting bullied by certain people in the pool. They weren't gang members, they, 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 were, they were just older men and dormen, so it come to a point where I couldn't think straight, I couldn't leave the house, so I just ended up going, going south of the pool, purchasing a load of firearms and coming back, and, and from that point I, I just went on a different path. For the listeners, these bouncers and doormen, they not just bullied you, but they tried to kidnap you, they stole your car, they... They took okay. my car off me, I think I was about 20 years of age at the time, and loaded them, pulled up and took my car, and he did used to bully me yeah, for money, but mm. that's because I'd crashed one of their vehicles when when I was a petty thief, I crashed one right. of their vehicles, so it was understandable, but the, the way they went about it was wrong, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, but... Um, it is what it is. It's water on the bridge. It was decades and decades ago. But that's the primary reason I got in, involved in firearms. Like you said, it's in the past now. But when you went to the police, they effectively left you to sort of fend for yourself. Yeah. 100%. Their opinion was I deserved what I got. I think it was the police station I went to. I was about, must have been about 19, 20. But I went there because I couldn't do nothing else. I was out, I was out of my death with these people. There's nothing I could have done. So... In the end, there weren't no help, there weren't no support. So um, I just went and purchased firearms and just thought, well, good, you know, I'll defend myself. But once I got into firearms, I know it sounds bad, I actually enjoy carrying one because it just gives you that sense of security mm. overall. Do you know what I mean? I'm not saying it was right and 
understand it, it, it was the wrong move to make, but when you're caught up in that lifestyle, you don't foresee the consequences, and also you don't you don't really have the hindsight to it as, as mm-hmm. to what could happen and, and the damage you could potentially cause. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I used to go shopping with firearms on me, and there could have been a situation if we would have started discharging that firearm, then there's a potential for the likelihood is innocent people would have been killed or injured. And, mm. and, and you don't realise that until you're out of that situation and you can look with a clear head and realise the potential consequences to it. One thing I find really interesting, mate, is your name itself is a very strong and powerful name in and of itself. I imagine it almost helped you carry a lot of additional authority when you started to make a name for yourself. Where did your name originate from, out of interest? Definitely not. The reason behind the name, because I was involved in gangs and I'd been, I was arrested for shootings and I'd been to jail for firearms. When I set up companies in 2012, I moved out of Liverpool, set up a few businesses. One of the reasons I changed my name is to prevent people Googling me and find right. my background because okay. I was dealing with companies and businesses and mm-hmm. so on. I was trying to go straight to some degree, do you know what I mean? So I think from what I can recall, that was the main reason I changed my name and and the name I chose, it, it was a bit it was a bit of a stupid one, but <laughs> it just fitted the situation at that time and for the last 10 or 11 years, it just it just stuck with me. But mm. if I could turn back the clock, what would I have changed? But I probably would have chosen more... I don't know, a more normal, normal one, do you know what I mean? But <laughs> it, is, it is what it is. We, we make stupid decisions and it's one of them, but it never had no impact. It doesn't mean because your name's different, people listen to you or, mm. or I don't think that's the fact whatsoever. Yeah. But I was an asshole with anyone and I was involved with weapons. So, you know, I'd say 85% of society, they don't want that headache, they don't want that drama, they don't want you turning up with firearms to them. So I'd say more than 85%, I'd say 95% of people didn't want to know criminals, drug dealers, whatever they were. And it's easy for people to say now, oh, you're just a divvy and this and that, but that's because I've changed. I've changed my ways. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If I would have went back to the way it was, these people to be hiding behind the bed. But mm-hmm. that's what you have when you change your ways. That's that's another obstacle you face. You have everyone coming out saying, oh, you're just an idiot, you're this, you're that. But it's just water off a duck's back. As I say, it's one of the things you've got to deal with when you change from being a, from a criminal to being a normal, productive member of society. Mm. You've got all these idiots, that, all these trolls, that's what they are, really, trolls. Saying, oh, you're an idiot, you're this, you're that, and, and trying, to, trying to provoke you into a reaction. But if you were to give in, given that reaction, they'd be the first people to go to the police. You know what I mean? And most mm. of them are criminals, most of them are criminals, girlfriends and wives. In fact, most of the crap I've had since I've come out of prison has been from women. 99% has been from women, like drug dealers' wives and stuff like that, who, who have had under pressure back in the day. You know what I mean? But... They're seeing this This is their opportunity. The last three years has been their opportunity to get back at me because I've changed. So mm. they're always trolling me and calling me a grass and calling me this, but they're just idiots to take it with a pinch of salt. That's all they are, just trolls. That's it. I think a lot of them are pissed off because whilst they were involved in crime, they had a nice life, and then, you know, as soon as the shit hits the fan and the source of the income stops, like the partner or the husband will get nicked and he'll go to jail. So they've gone from driving a PM to getting a 56 bus. I think they're frustrated about that, but people need to realise crime doesn't pay. And there's no way I'm going to go back into crime just to satisfy these idiots. So that's mm. why I just I, I ignore it. That's all they are at best. They're just a bunch of trolls. We all do things we regret. I regret the vast majority of stuff I've done. Whether that was robbing criminals, robbing drug dealers, whatever it may be. Or being being an asshole to people, I regret it. But when you're caught up in the moment, you don't really realise. Am I going to sit here and ask for forgiveness from everyone? Probably not. But what I'm doing now, I'm trying to 
put right the wrongs that I've done in my past, you know what I mean? I think I've made significant steps to do that. It's really interesting the fact that you said there about the name change because I didn't realise it was your own decision there. I just want to talk about the point when you almost went to prison. So like you said, you were selling up to sort of 15 firearms a day and you were arrested in 2004 and then you did go to prison for eight years. But you said that wasn't the initial wake-up call that you needed. Why was that and when did the wake-up call happen? I was arrested in 2003 for um, possession and manufacturing of firearms. They raided the police in Grangemont, where I was, and they found a loaded handgun next to my bed. And they also arrested me for manufacturing. There was paraphernalia, gun paraphernalia, bullets. And then the charges, for some reason, were dropped. So I was released again. And then I was involved in an incident in Whittle, in which someone was shot. And then I went on the run for a few months, and that's what I was then arrested for. And then they recharged me with one of the firearms that were recovered. So that was that. And I received eight years. I think I was 22 at that time. 21, 22, something like that. Yeah, but that wasn't a wake-up call because that sentence I used to uh, develop. I met some, I, w- I wouldn't say good people now, but in that moment, they were good people to me. Do you know what I mean? So I, I changed a lot, but it wasn't a wake-up call. It just made me develop and made me, you know, look at things differently and behave differently <laughs> when I was released. The real big moment is that you were put in prison for attempted murder and there was a really important point that I think you made on the trigonometry episode interview where you said that if the bullet had gone closer to your victim's chest, it would have probably killed him. So how much do you think about that moment? Did it almost make you believe that there was, ironically, given the crime, perhaps a guardian angel making sure that it didn't kill him, basically? Yeah, obviously, 100%. Look, the federal shots, I spoke to him afterwards, and, and do we love each other? No, we mates, no, but you know, we, we spoke and, and we put things aside and, and, we, and we, we understood where each of us were coming from. He brought it to me. He was the initial aggressor, but I've responded disproportionately. And really, I shouldn't have been carrying a firearm anyway. So, yeah, I, I, I was totally at fault. I accept that. But the best I could have done was, was apologise to the fella. And he seems to have, have accepted my apology. We put our differences aside. And I'm glad I did speak to him because it's always good, in my opinion, to speak to your victim if they're willing to speak to you and try and put things aside and explain your point. Not, not just the fire as such, but explain, look, I'm sorry, it shouldn't have happened. And hopefully we can move forward from it and whatever I can do to to make things better. I'm willing to do type of things, you know what I mean? But you've got to understand when I did speak to him, I was still an asshole, I was still a criminal. And that was that. But I didn't have no hard feelings towards him. Even though I went to prison because of him and, and you know, the girl I was with at that time, he, he was dating her. He started dating her. I, I didn't know no grudge or no hard feelings towards him. It, it's just one of them. If you shoot people, the chances are you're going to go to prison. And, and that's that. But there weren't just that instance. Back in them times, I, I was an absolute animal and I didn't really give a shit who were harmed or, or what it was. You know, all my victims were criminals and criminals' families. So I, I weren't just going out targeting old ladies or, or nothing like that. I weren't just targeting normal people. They were criminals. But that's not to justify it. The law is the law and the law protects criminals as well as normal people. Mm. So that's what you need to understand. You, you can't. But I used to justify it in my own mind back then. I think, you know, the drug dealers or the criminals or the gang members, so I can do what I want with them and they can't go to the police, but that's absolute nonsense. Because I've been in, you know, from 2009 to 2000, I don't know, for about five years, post-2009, I was in police stations almost every week for kidnapping, allegedly, uh, for complaints that I kidnapped drug dealers or had done this or had harmed this drug dealer or harmed that criminal or so on, so on. I'm not saying I was invincible because there was times when I was subject to attack. I was stabbed. 
was shot at quite regularly. So, but people think, and these young kids think, if they target criminals and they rob drug dealers, that they're safe from the arms of the police. But that's that's not true. And I remember a detective sergeant spoke to me one day. I said, look, I said, you know, you keep arresting us. These drug dealers keep having us arrested. You're entertaining them. And, and he explained to me, he said, look, I'd rather have nine craft dealers on the street than have you on the street. Because I was reckless and I didn't understand it at, the, at that point. Because I thought, we're only targeting drug dealers. What, why are the police even bothered? But the police have got to take account of, you know, imagine if it was the shooter, a drug dealer, and missing it, someone else. Innocent people are often caught up in the crossfire. And recent events that have occurred in Mesa, we, we see that. Innocent people are caught up in the crossfire of gang disputes. And I think kids... And people who are using the firearms miss that point. Do you know what I mean? Because they think their target is a fellow criminal, criminal peer. So there's not going to be much consequence. And they need to realise the potential for innocent people to be caught up. And also, even if your intended target is hit and you're only shooting drug dealers or you're only attacking drug dealers, for example, then it's still an assault, it's still a crime. And it's still for the police to address. But when you're caught up in that lifestyle, you don't realise it. You can't rationalise it in your own mind. It's only that when you're out of it, that I'm out of it now. I can realise and looking back with we're we're a clear mind. You can realise why the police were on my case every day, even though we was only harming drug dealers um, and other criminals. You can't understand it when you're caught up in it, if you know what I mean. As to why the police are so much on your case. One part of your trigger interview, which I found most worrying from a mental health perspective, was when you were hearing voices in your head leading up to the prison sentence. So just tell me about that. What were the voices saying to you? How strong were they? Were they in control of you? Well, listen, before 2004, I was absolutely bonkers. Uh, My my head was gone. I didn't really give a shit who or what. I I was just, I don't know, I I, I felt invincible, but I think the firearms gave me that feeling, that feeling of invincibility. I don't know. I don't know where the mental health side come from. I, I, I can't say. But I don't know. There, there, there was a lot of people. Well, I wouldn't say a lot, but there was a few people around me that were killed, and it was maybe that impacted me. Maybe that brought it on. I don't know. Or I can't really say. But I know one thing: my head went right away, thinking straight. And I don't know. I was absolutely bonkers. On a scale of one to ten, it was probably probably a nine and a half. My head was gone. But I think the judge recognised that at the time. At that time, people were getting two years and three years for firearms, and, it, and a judge gave me four years, three months, so I did get slammed. But the other judge for the shooting, I think he recognised that I, I weren't right. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's why I got overall eight years was a lenient sentence because there was a, there was a firearm. He's now got slammed for that, and then the different judge sentenced me for the shooting, and then another judge sentenced sentenced me for two stabbings, but I pleaded guilty to an affray. So altogether, I got eight years, which was even though it was a harsh sentence back then. It was still, to some degree, some of the judges were leaning towards me because they seen the problems that I was experiencing, what I, what I was going through. I want to give my listeners an insight into what your prison experience was like, mate, because you described it to, to Constantine and Francis as a waking nightmare. So why wasn't it an even worse experience for you than it would have been for someone else? That was only at the initial stages, and, and that was because mm-hmm. I'd upset that many people. I'd targeted that many drug dealers, that many criminals whether it was robbing them for drugs, cash, whatever, because that's what primarily I used to do, source me money from criminals, you know what I mean? So when I went to prison, this was 2004, this weren't, this weren't my last sentence, this was many years ago, so when I went to prison, they then got the revenge on me and started putting started putting it on me. They were paying prisoners and even paid them, the, a member of staff was involved in um, HMP Walton. 
So yeah, it, it comes to something when there's always corrupt staff in in, in every organisation, but it comes to something when organised crime groups are paying prison officers to assault inmates. That's bonkers, mate. I want to talk now about how you began to turn your life around because the wake-up <laughs> call and, and when the penny dropped did happen when you saw a TV drama called Little Boy Blue, which dramatised the tragic murder of Reese Jones from Liverpool. So why did watching that cause the proverbial penny for you to drop? That wasn't the sole factor. There was other contributing factors okay. as to why it changed, but that was a significant factor as to why it changed. And I think it was seeing his parents, you know, just normal people who've had their child murdered as a result of some gang dispute that didn't even involve them. And I think it's all right when you sat with all your mates and all that, you probably don't take account of it because you, you don't really... I don't think people, especially people who use firearms and weapons, they tend not to show emotion when they're with their friends, but when you're on your own or when you're pulled out of that environment and you can see the impact it's had upon normal people, an innocent kid who was going about his business. People say it was the wrong place. It went the wrong place. He was in the right place. That pisses me off quite a bit when people say, oh, it was the wrong time, wrong place, but that's saying like the victim shouldn't have been where he was. Why shouldn't he? He was at football. He was entitled to be there. Football practice all coming back to me, so he was entitled to be there. At the end of the day, it was the gunman that shouldn't have been there. It was the gunman that shouldn't have done what he'd done. But not only that, I know it was an accident, fair enough, but I used to speak to the gunman after that when he was when he was in Snaysways, I was speaking to him. And at that time, I thought he was a decent kid. But when you see the way he responded to the parents and the family during the court case, I only seen that because of that programme. And you think, nah, it's, it's shitty behaviour. It's scummy behaviour. And I think the least he could have done show some degree of remorse and some degree of... I know the, the family probably wouldn't forgive them anyway, but either way, it's just had an insult to injury. And what they've got to understand, the fucking innocent kid has been killed. Even not when intentionally, anyone who kills or harms a kid, I just see them as bad as a sex offender. Whether you're a gang member, whether you, no matter what you are, it's, it's always stepping the line. And I remember one day, there was one point in time, criminals didn't drag women and kids into their disputes. But... There were signs that when I used to drag women into it and target drug dealers' wives and stuff like that, so I suppose to some degree I was just as bad. But when you see that program and see how his family were and how distraught they were and, and the total disrespect and disregard that was shown towards them by, by the perpetrators, you think, nah, this is some next level shit. This is not really what I want to, this is not, not what I want to be bad of, type of thing. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Because it could happen when you're involved in that lifestyle. It could happen. You could be the next person sat in the cell, you know, murdering the kid unintentionally, you know, they can be caught up in the crossfire. Do you know what I mean? At the end of the day, you can go past someone's house, shoot their house. There can be kids behind the front door and be shot, even though you don't intend it and you don't foresee the consequences. It's one of those things that can easily happen. The penny just dropped and I thought, I did feel sorry for his family. I felt sick. And that's why I read to them. And from there, I was getting responses back from people. And even though I never done no work with them, people upon release, that still give me the... Um, like the, the, the thing to continue, do you know what I mean? It, the it, desire, it, it, yeah. Yeah, it inspired me to continue, whereas if I never got any responses, who knows, I may not have even changed. So mm. the people who responded to me, including like the mayor's office, the victims commissioner, and different charities and organisations, even though I never done nothing with them, I never worked with them. The mayor's office ex expressed interest in working with me, but it never comes to fruition when, when I got out, because I had other things, to other obstacles to overcome, do you know what I mean? But the people that responded to me, I think they were a significant part in me changing. And then when I got out, um, the people I engaged with from the police and so on, they also helped me. And they also changed me view and my opinion on the police. 
I think it was an inspector from the Met. He was one of the first ones I spoke to, one of the first police I spoke to. And I had some lengthy conversation with him. And he was one of the ones who started to change my view and my perception towards the police. You know what I mean? And, and you realise that the normal people doing a job, and it's a game, it's a game of cat and mouse as such. You're a criminal who's got to be lucky every day. And they're there to catch you. They've got to be lucky one, the, the one day. And I don't think it's not personal. Sometimes it can become personal, depending on the offence. But I'm an example. I've changed. They're not on my case. I thought they'd be harassing me every day like they used to, when, and they're not. So nine times out of ten, criminals are sat in prison thinking, when I get out, the police are going to be on my case. They're going to be harassing me. They're going to be targeting me. That's not the case. You know what I mean? If you change and show that you've changed, they do leave you alone, and they will provide support for you. And I've had more support. I know criminals are going to be watching this cringing and thinking you, you're grassing this, but it's not about being a grass. I couldn't give a shit what people are doing. I'm not grassing people up. But um, I've had more support from the police than I have from the probation and the prison service. The prison mm. and probation service. The police have given me more support and signpost me to better places, like even with my youth programme and stuff like that, even though it's not implemented yet. I'm making progress on it over time. Do you know what I mean? I'm still making progress. So I'm 99% it's going to be implemented in 2023. I don't want to say 100% because nothing's ever certain, but I've made a lot of progress and I've had a lot of obstacles to overcome. And sometimes I take advice from, like, I'll ask the police or ex-police officers for a bit of advice on, you know, how do we overcome this obstacle or what's the best way of this? And they've helped me a lot. They've helped me see things from, from a different angle, from a different perspective, even with, like, safeguarding approaches and how do we do this and how do we do that? Because I haven't got the expertise to do the professional side of it the only thing I, I believe i can do which i'm confident i can do is change kids and get them out of gun and knife crime whereas the, the official side of it i haven't really got that much expertise and that much knowledge so it's hard overcoming all the red tape all the obstacles you've got to overcome to satisfy the criteria and the expectations it, it has been hard but i'm getting there slowly but surely and you know i've raised a couple of grand up to now towards it so i'm, I'm almost there once i complete my exams this week hopefully if i pass i've got my final exam on I think it's Wednesday or Thursday. If I pass that, then I'm going straight back to the, to get my programme implemented and I'm going to put 100% of my time and effort into it. We're going to talk about all the work you do a little bit later, mate, in helping young people, but just on the prison system itself <clears> and the justice system, given that you've gone through it, you've been a part of it and you've changed your life in this way, what do you think needs to change about the current system whereby the punishment still fits the crime that the person's committed but that person is given the opportunity to rehabilitate and reintegrate and give back to society that they have. Yeah, look, the prison and probation service is not fit for purpose. And the courts are not fit for purpose. The judges get duped all the time. Do you know what I mean? There's always excuses. Or, I know you'll disagree with me on this, but mental health is often used as an excuse. Oh, no, I think that can... Yeah, I can see that happening. Yeah, yeah, to, to justify or mitigate someone's behaviour. Do you know what I mean? So to reduce the culpability... They'll use mental health or ADHD or autism. Now, half the time, no offence to anyone who's got autism or ADHD, but half the time it's a crock of shit. And the person in the dock, the autism or the ADHD didn't cause him to shoot or stab someone. That's bullshit. It means very, very rare. That's bollocks. I know autistic people. You know, I've got autism myself. And autism doesn't make you go out and stab people or autism doesn't make you go out and shoot people. And the fact that you're autistic should not be any factor in mitigation. Do you know what I mean? You still mm, they use the it as punishment. a shield. Yeah. 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 You can't use that as an excuse. The punishment needs to be a lot more severe. Or having said that, rehabilitation an opportunity to change 
needs to be addressed. There's no rehabilitation. There's no avenue in prison to help people. And that's one of the things I want to do. I want to primarily focus on, on the kids, but because I'm doing these exams, if I pass, one of the other things I want to look at doing is going to prisons and, and show people the route, what I've taken and the qualifications, what I've done and the jobs, what I've took. The job I've been offered is only a few days a week and it's, it's good money. So I'll be doing a few days a week on my job and then the rest will be put into the youth programme. And once the youth programme's up and running, then I'm going to come out of work yeah, and just focus 100% on that. So, But I want to use the job to show prisoners, look, you can get out, get a legit wage, 30, 35 grand, 40 grand, 50 grand, by just doing these few qualifications. Well, I think they've took me about, I don't know, I think I started about four months ago, or something like that, and I'm nearly complete. So for, for less than six months of quali- study and qualification, you can source a good legitimate wage where you're not looking over your back, you're not looking over your shoulder, you're not worried, you're not stressed every time you go to sleep. You you haven't got a large gun or your drugs, thinking that the police going to kick your door in the next day. You don't have to do that. You can go to work with a clear mind and come back and have a, have a legit wage, get a mortgage and, and, and be happy with your, fucking, with your family, do you know what I mean? Mm. I think a lot of prisoners don't recognise that or if they do recognise it, they haven't got the right support to put that into practice and, and, and achieve that. People in prison, they don't get no support in society. They're like, oh, we don't give a shit to the prisoners, but if you don't give a shit, then don't moan when you next get out and stab and shoot people. There needs to be more rehabilitation. And a lot of them have had shitty upbringings, and I'm not trying to justify their behaviour, but a lot of them don't know any difference. Some prisoners, well, a proportion of prisoners are absolute scum. There was a prisoner I was helping. Well, not helping, I was engaging because I thought he changed. And then he has to lend money towards something for his website, for his business. I've lent him the money, and 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 it was he scammed me, and I just think you you know what a piece of shit. I generally believed not many people feel me, but he did, and and I thought what an absolute piece of shit. And and you sort of lose faith. Do you know what I mean? I've prisoners in the past, and I pulled out of it because I think now nah, that they're horrible people. But what you've got to understand, there is some genuine ones that really want to change, and I was one of them, and I never had no support. I've had to get out and do it all myself. And mm. fight and fight and fight and overcome obstacles fucking every day, every week. So it's them type of people I want to try and support as well. Yeah, there's a vicious, vicious cycle here where, you know, if you don't give people who want to change, like you said, the support <clears throat> to change, then inevitably they are probably likely to reoffend because they can't get employment or they can't reintegrate back into society. 100%, yeah. But I, I, I think even when you leave prison, isn't it, doesn't, the support is crap. My experience of probation, I had a good probation officer who I developed a good relationship with. And in the initial stages, I didn't trust him. I didn't trust him whatsoever. I, I thought he was just, you know, wanting to put me back in prison. But when you realise the, the logic behind it, I'm not saying all the decisions they made were logical, but even some probation staff, some of them are good people. There's a few dodgy ones who, who, you, who you think should never be near offenders because they haven't got a clue and they make a bad situation worse. But... There is generally some good probation officers, and, and you know it's hard for me to say that because I've never, I've never really liked probation. But there is generally some good probation officers that generally want to help people, and there's good and bad in, in every organisation, as I said. But some of the probation do generally want to help people and want to keep people out of prison. But I just don't think they go about it the right way. Mm-hmm. And the communication, there's, when there's a breakdown of communication, when there's a breakdown of trust, then it's hard, it's hard to help the offender because. It's very difficult, and I've seen that happen in many cases. I want to reflect now on your mental health journey, Sicarius. So how do you look back on this period of your life? Who's the Sicarius we meet now, and how have you managed to reconcile 
with the guilt of what you did, but also be able to move on and help people through the work you do now? The guilt of what I did, obviously, it's, you know, can I sleep at night? Obviously, you can, yeah. So it's not like, oh, I can't handle what I did and, and, and it comes back to home. No, it doesn't. But at the end of the day, what more can I do apart from trying to make society a better place and trying to help people? There's no more I can do to right or only wrongs what I've done. Just certain people that will never forgive me. It is what it is. What, what more can I do? I can't go begging to them every day. But mm. if there's anyone that wants to speak to me and get an explanation or try and make amends on things, I'd be happy, I'd be happy to speak to anyone. Most of my enemies anyway I, I, I made up with. But it's not just about enemies. I mean, victims, any victims of any of my crimes, if any of them want to get in touch with me, I'd be more than happy to speak to any one of them. But I'm not going to contact them because I don't think that would be appropriate because many of them may not want to speak to me or any of my victims' families or whatever. I'd be happy to speak to them and move forward in whatever way we deemed appropriate. But mm. I have spoke to quite a lot of them and a lot of them have forgiven me, but you know, there's always those few in the background that probably wouldn't or wouldn't want to forgive you. And I understand. Do you know what I mean? Mm. But, you know, as well as being a perpetrator of crime, I've also been a victim. And sometimes you don't realise that you've been a victim. I've been stabbed. I've been shot at. It's one of them. But I didn't realise I was a victim. And then a few weeks ago, I was sitting there and thinking, I've been a victim of knife crime as well. But you don't realise because I was predominantly the perpetrator of violent crime. Do you know what I mean? Like firearms and stuff like that. Then you forget that you've also fell victim. Do you know what I mean? Because I didn't see myself as a victim. I, I didn't really... It was one of them. It's, it's weird. So it does impact your mental health. It messes with your head. And sometimes you're not thinking rationally or clearly until you're out of that situation. And you look looking from an outsider and have an outsider's perspective. You view things objectively instead of subjectively. And what has this mental health journey taught you about yourself, do you think? I think I've managed manage my emotions a lot more. Do you know what I mean? Whereas years ago when someone used to piss me off or annoy me, nine times out of ten, it caused them a whole lot of mischief. And no matter what people say, oh, you're a grass now, you work with the police, you work with... No, I don't, I don't work with, I don't work with any police. I'm not bothered what people do. I'm not here to be ringing crime stoppers or grassing people up, but I couldn't really give a shit. But I can manage my emotions instead of responding violently and, and turning up with gangs to people's houses and stuff like that. I, I can manage it more effectively. It's very, very rare to get angry. I don't really get angry. And when I do get angry, I can manage it. I can express it more appropriately, you know what I mean? Whereas years ago, I couldn't. And I think that's another significant factor in helping these kids is teaching them how to manage their emotions, negative emotions such as anger, do you know what I mean? And also teaching them how to look at things objectively instead of having some narrow mindset which they've developed and thinking a particular way, you can give them alternative ways to think, alternative ways to see see things and view things. Also learn them how to to see the consequences. That all comes down to emotional management, how to manage their emotions and, and how to know act impulsively how to think through first you know there's many times when people have done things to me even in the last few years well not not directly but you know what i mean people have done bad or said bad and there's times when you can easily act impulsively but when you sit and think of the consequences and and, and sit back and view it from an outsider's perspective and it helps you a lot it does 100 percent it does and i think that's what these kids need as well and as a final question before we move on to the next topic, if you could go back and talk to your younger self, perhaps the 11-year-old Sicarius who is being a rascal running around on mopeds or the 15-year-old Sicarius embroiled in gang life or perhaps the Sicarius in his early 20s in prison, what would you say, Tim, from your experience knowing what you do now? I got involved in gangs when I was 20, 21, so 21, I went sorry. involved yep. in gangs at 15, but 
look, there isn't one word to say to anyone. It depends on the person. So people have asked me that a few times, and I've, I've said A, B, and C. But looking back, it, it's not really. There's no one right thing to say to any particular person. It depends on the situation. And sometimes two different people, you've got to say two different things and you've got to deal with it in two different approaches, you know what I mean? So there's not a one approach for it all. So you need to adapt the solution and the advice to the individual. We've talked about your mental health journey, Sakarius. Now I want to talk about the work you do in giving back and helping young people through your organisation, OCG Solutions UK. So tell me how and why you became inspired or wanted to start the organisation and what you wanted to achieve with it. Well, obviously I wanted to be helping young people, young kids to get away from gangs and to get out of that lifestyle. And I've been doing different bits of voluntary work, like for example, youth centres. I've been to quite a few youth centres. I spoke to kids and, and, and my message was always receptive, but... The barrier there was the way I spoke to them and the language I used was frowned upon by the professionals, by the youth workers and the youth centres. So a lot of them didn't want me back. And there was one youth, there was one youth worker, a senior youth worker, that was telling the parents because a lot of them wanted to, well, quite a few of them wanted to put the kids on the program, wanted to run. And this senior youth worker, a woman called Jill, went to the parents, said, "No, he's involved in firearms, he's involved in gangs. Keep your kids away from him. He's bad. He's bad news." which he shouldn't have done. I've complained, I've submitted complaints about it. But I didn't know that until the parent, until months later when I spoke to one of the parents and then a few other people have said, yeah, she's more or less put the problem. You know, it didn't really bother me that the parents were concerned because you can understand that. If, if a youth worker has come to the parents and said, look, he's involved with guns and gangs and he's this and that and he could be trying to groom your kid back into a gang and she shouldn't have said that. She, she she really shouldn't have been repeating my past. It's, it's nothing to do with it. But I'm open about it anyway, but I've submitted a complaint about it. No doubt she's going to deny it, but a lot of the barriers that are facing youth centres is the professionals, and they haven't got a clue how to deal with these kids, and the way to go about it is they just think hugs and cuddles. Some of the meetings I go to, and they say, oh, the, the kids need love, and they need hugs, and they need to be told that someone loves them. It, it's an absolute crop of shit. It's an absolute load of crap. One thing you say makes you stand out from the rest is your ability to speak to these kids completely honestly and sometimes very bluntly. Is it that honesty that makes those kids respect you and take you seriously in a way that perhaps they aren't doing with some of these professionals? I can't say the kids respect me. I don't, I don't know whether they do or not. It depends on the kid. But and one thing I do know is that my message gets through to them and they listen. Do you know what I mean? So 100% I've seen it. And over 100 kids, the vast, vast majority listen to me and understood me and it's the way i explain the consequences it's the way i explain gun crime knife crime i've been through it all so i've been a victim i've been a perpetrator and i've been at a, a high level so when i explain to them and explain the ramifications and, and and the potential consequences and the reality of it the reality of prison they listen to me whereas these youth workers just talk absolute garbage to them and uh, you know there probably are some good youth workers but i don't rate them i don't rate professionals because the way they the way they go about it they're just making a bad problem worse and they're impeding the solution hmm. even these psychologists and child this and child that everything is about they put inclusive talk before precise and realistic talk do you know what i mean so they're more bothered about inclusion and we don't want to offend these kids but these kids are running around with guns and knives stabbing and shooting so how can you not want to offend them? Like, I, call, I called a kid a little shit or a little cunt or something one day, and a youth centre asked me not to come back. He said, you can't call him that. It'll traumatise them. I said, you don't know fuck all of our trauma. He said, traumatise them. I said, don't you think I'm going out stabbing people and, you know, doing what he's doing with knives and weapons? Don't you think that traumatises people? But 
it's like the professionals don't give a shit about the victims, the more bothered about the perpetrator. And to get through to these perpetrators, we need to be harsh and give them a short, sharp shot of reality. Do you know what I mean? That's the way we'll get their attention. That's the way we'll get through to them. All this textbook talk and all this nonsense, equality and inclusion, it's a crock of shit. Do you know what I mean? We don't have equality and inclusion in gangs. It doesn't exist. Do you know what I mean? A gang will never say, little Teddy's got a disability, let's treat him differently. It's bullshit. They'll still give him a gun and send him out on a bike and go and say, go and shoot him. He doesn't give a fuck about your autism or your ADHD. It doesn't come into question in a gang. So these professionals, I know they'll say, oh, we're not a gang, but they're not realistic with these kids. It's like an Arab and a Jew have a trying to have dialogue. One speaks Arabic, one speaks Hebrew. You're never going to get anywhere. They speak different languages. That's the barrier between professionals and these kids. You need a middle person to get in, in between. Don't get me wrong, we still need professionals. We still need to do things correctly and safeguard these kids. Otherwise, we're going to have people, offenders, ex-offenders, ex-gang members getting out and potentially getting these kids back on the wrong path. Because they, they are vulnerable, a lot of them are vulnerable, and they're prone to be recruited by gang members. You know, and, and I can imagine there's many gang members or ex-gang members that say they've changed who generally haven't changed. So we need good oversight, good managerial oversight. And that's what I want with, with this programme when you implement it. I'm happy for anyone to oversee it and to be looking at how it's progressing and how it's implemented, do you know what I mean? So I don't want to just go on my own with, with 10 kids, 12 kids, and just fuck off with them. And, and what It's not, not a case of that. I want professionals to oversee it. I want, I want anyone who wants to oversee it can oversee it. But the point I'm making is youth workers and professionals are making this situation a lot worse than it already is. I imagine part of your work, mate, involves social media and how you help navigate these kids around social media because when you were growing up, social media probably didn't exist and it's probably a blessing that it didn't and now it's absolutely everywhere kids are using apps like snapchat to taunt each other provoke sometimes end up causing fights and deaths a lot of those are filmed or shared so how do you tackle this issue with them through your work one of the things i'm going to be including is mediation and i think mediation is massive massively effective not only amongst young people but even older older gangs or any war and faction mediation is massively effective. I've done mediation many a times, and nine times out of ten, it worked. So mediation is going to be implemented with these kids, and we're going to get around the table, talk it out, and, and, and look at a way forward. But social media is just a means that they're using to videos on or to, or to call each other out or to slander each other. Or, But if we're social media weren't there, then they'd find another means to do it. And I think social media... The same take the video, they shouldn't be able to upload the videos and they shouldn't be able to, but I think it's beneficial that they do because it provides intelligence. So mm. I think it's a lot better. I wouldn't encourage kids to put videos on saying they want to shoot this and they want to do that, but what I'm saying is if you never had social media, how would you monitor the situation? Mm. Do you know what I mean? If you never had these kids doing this on these social media platforms, how would you monitor it? How would you be aware? How would you become aware of it? And I think social media, it can be used to your advantage in rehabilitation. Do you know what I mean? It can, it can give you an intelligence, it can give you an understanding, it can give the police intelligence as to what's going on between war and gang. So I don't think it's that negative. Mm. And I don't think social media is going to cause people to kill. You've got to have that mindset. You've got to be a killer. Or, you, or you've got to, you've got to have the, the hunger to want to kill or harm. Social media, you know, I can show you a rap video now and show you, show you look, this and that. It doesn't mean you're going to go and carry that out or you're going to become that person i think it's bollocks but kids are groomed and exploited on social media they recruited gangs use social media as a means to recruit people yeah so 
you know, it's got its ups and downs, but all this video stuff and rap videos and stuff like that, uh, it's, it's just a crock of shit. Do you know what I mean? And people are saying, oh, that's what's causing the, the murders, that's what's causing... No, no, it's not. It's the ideology what's causing the murders. It's the mindset what's causing the murders. It's causing them to mm. carry the knives and stab and carry the guns and shoot. It's not rap videos. Someone doesn't watch a rap video and say, oh, I want a gun and go and kill. It's bollocks. They've got to have that way about them in the first instance. Do you know what I mean? You wouldn't have little Terry who goes to church every Sunday, watch a rap video and then become a murderer, then become a stone cold killer. It doesn't work like that. You've got to be either groomed and exploited and have it indoctrinated into you. Or you've got to have that mindset in you in the first instance. You've, you've got to be a crank or, or, or a fucking psychopath in the first instance. So you've got to be groomed and indoctrinated with, with that mindset. With those mm. beliefs and principles, so it's bollocks. You, you, you get all these organisations saying A, B, and C, but nine times out of ten, I think it's personally it's a crock of shit. I watched a documentary recently called Hometown of Killing, which was the second series, and it focused on Manchester and the murder of a schoolboy who was privately educated, middle class, and I think fairly well off, but somehow became involved in gang culture, and him and his friends were carrying knives. So I think previously violence involving knives. <coughs> was probably a, a working class phenomenon in many respects but now all these middle class kids are getting involved what do you put that down to i think i know the case and you know what i don't know that much about it specifically but i don't see them as gang members i see it as one kid who killed another you were carrying knives that don't make you a gang member it makes you a knife carrier your local butcher or your local chef carries a knife you're going to cross them as a gang member but at what point do we do we define someone as a gang member the one who done it he was just a normal fat rich kid what's gang member about him he ain't going out putting, carrying guns, going out on bikes, fucking shooting people. No. He, he was just a, an idiot, some idiot kid who had a knife and it went wrong. He thought he was the boy. Yeah, he, he idolised the culture, basically, is probably yeah, what yeah, I'm trying to say. Just, yeah. He was just an idiot. Yeah. He was just an idolizer. He was an attention whore, do you know what I mean? He was a, mm-hmm. an attention seeker. He wanted to be that person. He wanted to be that guy. He never was and he never would be. That's that. And now he's scum doing what he done, but did he foresee the consequences? Did he intend to kill? I don't know because I don't know. You know, it, it, it's hard. You, you, know, you know, when you're in that lifestyle, it's hard. And a lot of the time, you don't foresee and you don't intend. Do you know what I mean? It, it's through recklessness, through being reckless more than anything. I'm not speaking about this case specifically because I don't mm-hmm. know adequate details to say this and that. If I knew more about the case, then I could give a better commentary on it. But what I do know of it, that kid wasn't a gang member. He was just a fat kid who carried a knife. So is it here a problem of the idolising of the culture causing these boys to use it to like attract social status or something like that or social climbing i don't know you've got the sayers and the doers and right. sometimes sometimes a sayer can be a, he can become a doer in the moment and not realize it and i think he was more i don't from my understanding of what i know of it and uh, which is not very much but he, he come across as one of the ones just to carry it for i don't know to create some false image and a false yes. sense of confidence yep. type of thing do you know what i mean which a lot do but I don't think he's a gang member. I don't think he's involved with any gangs, to mm. my, my personal opinion. But that's one of the ripple effects of, of knife crime and carrying a knife. If you carry it, you're more inclined to use it or have it used upon you. And there's many cases like that where kids who aren't affiliated to gangs or aren't involved in gangs will use a knife. Maybe not foreseeing the consequence or not wanting the consequence to be as they turned out to be. Did he want to kill that kid? I doubt it, but I don't know because I don't know what was going through his mind on the night at the time. But to murder someone, you don't have the intention to kill. It doesn't have to be the intention to want to kill. That's where a lot of kids get mistaken. They didn't want to kill them. It's not murder. It doesn't matter. The intent to cause serious harm or serious violence or grievous bodily harm can be murder. 
if, if as a consequence the person dies. The intent to kill or cause serious harm, I, I think that's the ingredients for the, for the murder. And as we reflect on this part of your journey, mate, what has been, first of all, your proudest achievement doing OCG Solutions so far? It hasn't really got the traction I wanted to get yet because the programme isn't up and running. And the primary purpose, obviously, initially it was set up for our prisoners. I diverted from that and thought, no, I need to be able to use in the community because that's where it's needed. And plus prisoners, a lot of them haven't got the morals and principles that they ought to have. And a lot of them are saying they're changing and they've changed when they haven't, they're lying. It's, it's all a false spectacle. So predominantly, it's going to be helping young people in the community, but there is going to be an element where we're going to be going, wanting to go into prisons and try and just signpost prisoners to the right place and, sh- and give them the expertise and the training that they need, divert and signpost them to the relevant training providers and then get them into work. So that's probably going to be the prison aspect of the older offenders, probably going to be about 20%, whereas the youths in the community and the youth programme, that's probably going to be about 80% of the work that OCG Solutions will or, will be doing and as a final question what do you hope to achieve with it in the future i I want my program implemented nationally because i know and there's no one that can disprove my theory here i know what's in place now does not work and i know it will not work 100 percent. and that's why we're seeing this ideology spread across young people and it's getting much worse many more in the droves are turning to gun and knife crime Predominantly knife crime, do you know what I mean? Because guns are more expensive to purchase and they're more harder to source. But there's droves and droves of kids, more and more. Even kids who come from good backgrounds and have good upbringings turn into knife crime and turn into gangs. Because it's coming, I don't know, it's like them Balenciaga Balenciago socks and Iranian goose coats and stuff like that, all this bullshit that people wear. It becomes a trend and that's what knife crime is becoming. It's like a virus and it'll spread. If it's not remedied, it'll spread. And currently... No one's got the solution. You've got professionals saying, we need to do this, we need to do that, and it's bollocks. Go, go and do it then. Stop speaking and go and do it. You know what I mean? They've got the power to do it, do it. Whereas I haven't had the power to implement my programme because I've had to come up obstacle upon obstacle, but I'm, I'm slowly getting there, and it's become much, much closer to being implemented. Do you know what I mean? Not only financially closer, but you still haven't got the full funds. I've only, I've only got a proportion, but I'm overcoming more and more obstacles and more people are listening. And there's more people that are more inclined to be considering my approach and looking at my approach, even though they haven't implemented it. I want to show it to work first. I want to implement it, pilot it for three months and show it to work. And then eventually I want to roll it out across the country because I know it will work. Look, the only person that's going to look stupid if it doesn't work is me, no one else. Uh, And then I know if I implement this program and it doesn't work, then... You know, no one has ever listened to anything to say anyway, but I know everyone would just think I was full of shit and it destroyed my credibility. And I know people look at me now and think, you're not rational in what you say. You change, I wouldn't say change the goals, but it changed the way I'm applying it. And that's because, yeah, it, it's always developing in better ways. If you can do something in a better way, like there'll be a professional or an ex-police officer you'll speak to and he'll say, have you ever thought about just twinking it this little bit? Not the program as such, but... Like uh, the professional side of it, the the um, what's it called? Not the practical side of it, like the the implementation of it, the policy. Yeah, the policy, the, like yeah. the policy type of thing. Do you know what I mean? So there is a lot of tweaks which I've made, and I've come from from what I, I started out at first. It's a lot different the approach I want to take now because I didn't realise we had this much red tape and need this much political nonsense to satisfy and and and, and abide by. I didn't realise that. There's a lot to do with safeguarding, which I can understand, but. 
even the language used and, and, and it, it's, it's absolute bollocks there's that many barriers so i'm navigating these barriers and that's what I, that's what i've been doing so that's why a lot of it does change but people might say oh he doesn't sound rational or he doesn't sound this but just let me implement it and let me show the end result it doesn't matter how i get to it as long as i get to the journey as long as i rehabilitate these rehabilitate these kids then that's all that matters hopefully when, when people see the pilot at the, at the first program then they'll realize what i was saying was right and if it doesn't work it's only me that's going to look the idiot Our final topic of conversation, Sakarius, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests if we have time. It is a general chat about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? Good, compared to what it was, it, it's good, do you know what I mean? But I don't know, you have ups and downs, and I think that's what everyone did. You always have your bad days, but it's how you manage it, do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think I manage my emotions and my mental health a lot better than what I did previously. Mm-hmm. Because I didn't have the skills to manage it then, but now mm-hmm. I do. I, I apply them, so it's a lot better, yeah. What age were you when you became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you having weren't physical and they were actually a product of your mind and a mental health? No, it's only a couple of years ago. <laughs> I don't know, probably about 2018, maybe 2019. But that's only once I'd done a course in emotional management and how to manage emotions. I think it was 18 months of a programme what I'd done um, and, it, and it helped me a lot. Where I've mm-hmm. never been a fan of programmes, especially the ones offered in prisons. I think they're a crock of crap, but... I done an external one. I think it lasted about eighteen months, and it, it helped me massively. Can you remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? The very first one was a psychiatrist over a shooting. Ernest Van Bokerum or Wakem. That, that was the first one, and I was just absolutely bonkers then. So you probably seen I was bonkers. I think that was the first time I ever spoke to anyone over it. What mm. I can remember, that I was, I was about must have been about twenty twenty one. I was I was on the man's with firearms, and he was the one I spoke to. And what positive tools and methods do you use in your life to improve your mental health? Which ones have worked for you? Maybe which ones that haven't? It's taking time out from situations and trying to realise that some situations are beyond your control. Do you know what I mean? So you can't control every situation. You you only control the way you can react or respond to a situation. Do you know what I mean? So it's about looking at things objectively and from an outsider's point of view. And sometimes you need to step back and look at it. And in the moment, we can all lose ourselves in the moment, no matter how good you are, no matter how nice of a person you are. We can lose ourselves in the moment, our thought process, our rational thinking. And it's about recognising that when that happens and taking a step back and getting your, getting your common sense back and re-evaluating things and then going back at it from a different angle. What is the best book you've read for your mental health? Now, it can be mental health or self-help related, but it doesn't exclusively have to be. And if not a book, maybe a podcast or a TV show or something else. Um, there's one called The Art of War. What mm-hmm. I like. That's not necessarily about war. It gives business people reader and, uh, and, it, and it's, you know, you can have war with yourself. You can be at war with yourself. And that's what people need to see. Do you see a book called The Art of War? I think it was The Art of War. There was a, The Art of War and there was another one. I mixed up it went the art of war that was all right the art of war but there was another one called the powers 48 powers is it sorry okay 48 no, powers. I heard of it. it was red mm-hmm. remember the art of war was black and there's a red book red and blue 48 powers or something like that i think that's probably the bad the best one yeah the best one i'm not really a book person do you know what yeah, I mean? that's so, fine. yeah but i think that was probably the best one it just gives mm. you different ways of thinking and as a final question, mate, this is a broad one. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health or their mental health issues if they want to do it? Look, this is one of the things I've realised over the past year or two, the past couple of years, that men 
are deemed and treated inferior to women by professionals, by the court system, by we're deemed as just you're a man, get on with it. Or women are always prone to mental health, but men are not. Men are immune to it, which is a crock of shit. I think more men commit suicide than women. You know what I mean? So significantly so, yeah. Th- 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 that's one of the things that frustrates the life out of me. The way I don't know, a woman can say anything and they're automatically deemed to be oh the woman's right and the man's wrong or the man's at fault and and, and they don't realise men suffer as well as women. We're, we're all human. Irrelevant to your biological sex or whatever, you can still suffer mental health, whether you're a man or a woman. And and don't take this the wrong way, but a lot of the issues men face and a lot of the struggles, it can be family-related or relationship-related or Mm -hmm. woman-related. And I think things need to be looked at objectively based upon the facts and based upon the evidence, and we shouldn't jump Mm -hmm. to conclusions and think, you know, oh, he's all right, he's a man. Even in relationships where they break down and the woman... I'll say, oh, he's bad, he's this, he's that, my mental health is suffering. But the man's just left to fend for himself. And, and, and it's a cruel world we live in. I think we've gone too much over to the left, where we've lost our sense of direction and, and, and what's right. And I think we should view every case upon its own minutes and, and not just think, oh, he's a man, so he's the bad one, or he's a man. He can't mm-hmm. have his mental health. Or... It's bizarre, but I've only become aware of that over the last few years. And, you know, a, a lot of people use that. To a man's detriment, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, he, he's a man, so it doesn't matter. About it. It, it pisses me off, but it's hard for me to put into words where I'm not going to offend people. So, no, no, I completely get what you're saying, mate. And you know, you can, you can see with men who are domestically abused. Uh, yeah, yeah, you know. that, that was what I was trying to get at, but I, I don't mm-hmm. want to come across because I know a lot of women are domestically abused, and predominantly yeah. the perpetrators are men. But there are men that suffer as well. Well, a third a third of men are victims, and that's at least a third. It could be as high as fifty fifty if we go on on mass underreporting rates. But yeah, yeah, it's a big it's problem. Horrible. And everyone just thinks domestic abuse is about physical violence. It's not. It's not. It's not. Yeah. Listen, as many times I'd rather be smacked in the face than go through the mental trauma I've been through. Mental mm. trauma, psychological trauma, can be a lot a lot worse than physical. Yeah. And, and yeah, punch, punch in the thing. face lasts five seconds. You know, emotional trauma lasts can last yeah, a long time. Yeah. But it, so, some of the some of the things I've experienced and encountered, I much would have preferred someone to just come and beat me up. Because being beat up, you can get over that quicker than when someone mentally tortures you or psychologically tortures you. And it, it, it's horrible. But mm. the system doesn't see that. The criminal justice system. Well, it, it's starting to see it more and more. I think a lot of judges are recognizing the issues which we, which we're facing in society now. Some people are, are manipulative by nature or they become very manipulative and use what they present as as to cloud the, ju- to cloud the vision and judgment of others. Just because you're five foot doesn't mean you can't mentally bully someone who's six foot. Mm. You know I mean? Just because just you're nine stone doesn't mean you can't mentally bully someone who's 20 stone. And mm. that's where we need to ch- change our perception, bullying, mental health. And, and sometimes people are afraid to come forward with the mental health because they feel they're going to be deemed as, as weak. Or be accused of abuse themselves. <laughs> yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Ex- ex- exactly that. But, but, but I'm trying to... It, it's hard because you can't, you can't speak your mind these days because people just look... Oh, yeah. People get offended. Everyone's quick to be offended. Yeah. So, But, you know, just because you're a man or whatever, no matter what you sex, it's irrelevant. Man, male, female, whatever you may be, anyone can suffer mental health. And mm. any age can suffer mental health. That's a great way to end this. So, Karis McGrath, thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking podcast and talking to me, mate. All right, no problem. Thank you. Take care. 
Well, that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking Podcast. A massive thank you to Sicarius for being my special guest, for talking so openly about his journey from gangs to prison and now giving back. I'll put links to where you can follow Sicarius on social media in the show notes. And I hope this has made you, the listener, reflect on the people who are behind the criminal statistics you see and what we as society need to do or not do to make sure these people can become fully-fledged functioning members of society again. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give it a share on social media channels. Tell your friends or work colleagues about it. If you're feeling generous, write us a review or give us a five-star rating Apple Podcasts. If you like what we're doing here at Vent, please consider supporting us by going to www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. Or you can make one-off donation to our GoFundMe. You can buy a Vent t-shirt or you can buy a ticket to Just Checking In Live number four, take two. That is on our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash venthelpuk. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always okay to vent. <laughs>